I'm just going to let you in on a... This week was great for me because as I studied and poured over this text all week, the words of Jesus in verse 29 have been a great source of encouragement and comfort for me as I wondered how, as I wonder and as I continue to wonder how Christians are to answer the world as it keeps pushing and arguing for its ever-increasing wickedness. Jesus here responds to the Sadducees and the ridiculous scenario, the fringe scenario that they brought to him in an effort to make him look like a fool with these words in verse 30. You are wrong because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Can I just say, I love it. Because Two things that we fear in our world today, right? Two things that we are persistently dissuaded from doing in our day are this. First, clearly telling another person or group, you are wrong. Because you do not understand the scripture, because your interpretation of the text is faulty and riddled with error. And God's power is sufficient to solve absolutely any problem or any conundrum that any person faces in this life. And second, none of us wish to, none of us want to, in fact, many of us actually fear looking like a fool to the world, right? And Jesus, in this exchange with the Sadducees, models for us, models for you, models for me, how to deal with these all-too-common situations, both of them. Are we allowed to tell people that they're wrong? Yes! Do we need to fear looking like a fool in the eyes of the world? No! We face these same situations as the people of God in our own world today, as those who are committed to holiness of life, obedience to the commands of Christ, and the proclamation of His will as He's revealed it to us in His Word. We still face this in our day-to-day lives, don't we? Because we live in a day that I like to call the time of, a de- of death by a thousand cuts and qualifications. Death by a thousand cuts and qualifications. So let me kind of explain. I'm going to use two examples here that are hot button, hot topic, debated issues in our own day. First, the murder of babies in the womb. Second, sexual perversion or perversions of sex and sexuality. The world would like to make you, the Christian, feel like, look like, sound like the bad guy for holding to godly biblical values and wisdom in both of these situations. And Jesus here gives us the permission to actually respond by saying, you're wrong because you don't know God's word. For example, so when it comes to the murder of babies in the womb, God has clearly declared himself to be the God who, according to Ecclesiastes 11, sends the spirit to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Or, depending on your translation, it also could mean this, who causes the bones to grow in the womb. God is the one who, as David wrote in Psalm 139, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Wonderful are your works. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as of yet there were none of them. This is the same God who declared to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Do you see the meticulous involvement of the Lord in the formation of babies in the womb? The Apostle Paul also knew this, and he wrote in Galatians chapter 1.15 that God had set him apart even from his mother's womb. And Job 
Poor old Job. In chapter 31, verse 15 of Job, recognize that God is the one who fashions us in the womb. And that the baby in the womb is actually a human being can be noted in such historical narratives as on the day when a pregnant Elizabeth heard the salutations of a pregnant Mary and the baby in Elizabeth's womb, the one that we know as John the Baptist, leaped in her womb upon hearing the voice of the one who at that moment had been carrying the Christ. See, we can know, we can believe and proclaim these incontrovertible and incontestable and supremely clear witness of Scripture to the life and the value of a baby in the womb. All babies, in all wombs, in all parts of the world, and in all times. But our typical response in this day is not, hallelujah and amen, is it? But instead, it's a death by a thousand cuts. A host of, well, what about this? And what about this situation? Is it permissible to kill your baby then? What if this despicable and horrific thing gives rise to the pregnancy? Is it okay then to terminate your child in response? And if you're thinking right now, if you're sitting here right now thinking about all the what-ifs and all of the ways out and all of the possible escape hatches to this subject, you can see right now how much you yourself have been trained by our death by a thousand cuts culture. And usually, as it was in the, in the narrative that we are going to read today, it's the exceptions rather than the norms. I mean, when the Sadducees bring this question to Jesus, there was probably not any single instance of a man or a woman that had had seven wives and died childless. They bring to us the fringe rarities rather than the general realities. And with each cut... With each qualification, the enemy knows that he moves us closer to his end goal. Because if those who keep on cutting can get us to buckle at the fringes because we do not know the power of God or the scriptures, it becomes easier to move us in and by stages to collapse on the norms. As the next outlandish scenario is painted, and then the next, and the next, and the next, and there is a relentless move towards just getting you to give in on the entire issue. It's a well-known, tried-and-true, successful, many-times-over strategy to move us from holding on to, from gripping and grasping with white-knuckle fervor biblical truth, and holding on to it with conviction to bringing us to deny it by a series of small steps. And the reason for asking all of these fringe questions and bringing up all of these outlandish scenarios is to make us look like fools. To make us look out of step with the values of culture so that they might do the very thing they're hoping to do to Jesus in this narrative. To paint him with the brush of whatever the insult of the day might be. For you it might be you're cold-hearted or you're lacking compassion or you're bigoted or you're out of touch or you're backwards or whatever it is. Who in here likes to be saddled with such slanderous labels? Nobody put their hand up. Neither did I. None of us like it. We see much the same thing happening with the issues of sexuality, transgenderism, marriage, homosexuality. Also, even though, once again, Scripture sp speaks to all of these subjects with great clarity, God openly, plainly, and comprehensively speaks to His design for human flourishing in these areas. And for you and I to speak God's word with boldness and conviction to these topics will, once again, bring upon us what? The happiness and the compliments of the world? No, the malice and the defamation of the world. Jesus states, for example, without any equivocation, the purpose and pattern of God in Matthew 19. When he said, God who created them, Adam and Eve, from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, which is a proper God-honoring marriage, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So one God-honoring marriage 
gives rise and birth to another God-honoring marriage. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere does Scripture ever permit or even hint at the notion that any pairing of human beings other than that of a biological male born with male parts and a biological female born with female parts can ever become what God terms one flesh. It's impossible. One of the major spiritual blessings of marriage, according to God's design, is that you become one flesh with your spouse. Every single reference to anything other than this male-female marriage bond as the proper and only right relationship for the sexual act speaks in tones of condemnation and of judgment. Homosexual acts, homosexual behaviors, homosexual relationships, homosexual thoughts as the, are all sinful, as are every other sexual perversion, bestial relations or any other um, sexual relation outside of God's blueprint. And the word that Scripture actually uses to define these relationships are, in Leviticus 18.22, for example, the word abomination. It's not a nice word. Everything, all outside God's biblical blueprint of one biological man and one biological woman, joined together in a lifelong, exclusive, committed, monogamous, recognized marriage, are declared sinful by the Lord, sinful by the prophets of the Lord, sinful by the priests of the Lord, sinful by the apostles in Scripture. That is the resounding witness of God's Word. And yet, and yet, (coughs) even those who profess to love and serve and follow Christ will do the same thing with this issue that they do with the murdering of babies in the womb. Death by a thousand cuts And I hear them all the time. For example, what about the suicide rates? If you don't encourage people in their feelings, they might hurt or harm themselves. Let me just tell you this. It is never the gospel that is the problem. Never. It is never the offer of grace and salvation held out to anyone by Christ that is the problem. It is never the calling of a sinner to faith, repentance, and life in Christ that leads to the serious issues that one might feel or face in the depths of their darkened hearts and futile minds around this issue. No, in calling people to Jesus, we are calling them to healing, calling them to wholeness, calling them to a friend who sticks closer than a brother, calling them to the Lord who knows and understands you and I better than we know and understand our very own selves. We are calling sinners to the joy and contentment they are so desperately seeking in this evil, wicked perversion as they grope in the darkness. As Jesus said and made it clear, right? It's the thief. It is Satan, our great enemy, the hater of my soul, the hater of your soul, who comes to produce feelings of hopelessness and to bring torment into a person's life. Jesus said he has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And on the flip side, Jesus said, I came, Jesus came, (coughs) that we may have life. And not just life, but life abundantly, life to the fullest. But the cuts, however, even when we speak of the excellencies of Jesus, the wonders of the Lord, and even when we are the ones who are truly laboring to point lost souls in the direction of their greatest delight, the cuts keep coming, don't they? This is how God created me, you might hear. And God doesn't make mistakes, right? I've heard that one a number of times. And the answer is no, God does not make mistakes. But you and I must realize that the world is at this moment, according to Romans 8, under bondage to corruption, as the Apostle Paul wrote. Meaning that all of the affections and all of the dispositions of the natural man, the non-Christian person, are disordered from birth. And just because you have certain desires, it does not mean that God is content to let you pursue those desires without any sort of judgment. but he instead commands all men everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit might rightly order, transform, and renew our affections to align with his word. 
So whether you're born with corrupted sexual passions, whether you're born with an inordinate lust for felony home invasions, whether you're born with a lack of self-control that, opens it, that reveals itself in gluttony, your, or your default mindset is to lie about things, simple little things. You've met those types of people, right? They just lie and lie and lie and lie. And you can't understand why they're lying. You didn't need to lie about that. You may be one of those. Doesn't matter what you are, no one can say, none of us can say, well, this is how God made me. And he doesn't make mistakes, right? All, every single one of us, no matter what, are called to turn to God and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But the cuts keep coming. You might also hear something like, this is my authentic self. I can't tell you how. Ah, that's like fingers on a chalkboard. This is my authentic self. Don't you want me to be happy? Wouldn't God want me to be happy? Again, lies of the enemy. The way God created you is your authentic self. And if you'd truly be the best and most joyful and content version of yourself, the Bible says, repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith. His arms are open wide to receive all who do so into his most precious family. The Lord and by extension his children are the ones who care most about authenticity and most about happiness and joy. And it's for this reason that we labor to leave behind our own sinful depravity and call others to leave behind their own sinful wickedness in and by the power of the Holy Spirit and call sinners of all stripes and all types in the world to joy in the Lord by grace through faith in Christ. And before we move on, I just want to say I want you to know this to be certain. I don't know all of your situations. I don't know where you've come from, what you've done, if you've succumbed to any of these <clears throat> temptations and trials. If you have given to and succumbed to and committed or practiced either of these terrible sins, killing a child in your womb, or if you have been a man who has convinced or pressured another to kill the child in their womb, or if you have engaged in homosexuality, activity or in other sexual perversions, heterosexual perversions, I want you to know this, that the grace of Christ is greater than all of your sin. And the grace is offered by Christ to you in this moment. Right now, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, adoption into the family of God are offered to you. These are not unforgivable sins. Christ paid the price at the cross for sins such as these and calls upon each and every one of us now to repent, believe, and be forgiven. But oh, so many tactics, so many strategies. There's a word I keep hearing over and over and over again now, gaslighting. Have you guys heard this word? Gaslighting. The meaning is the effort to make you think that your right, true, and accurate views on something are actually deranged. Along with, this, with these ridiculous fringe scenarios and situations brought up, situations and scenarios that rest on the fringes and are used to get you and everyone else to deny, to erase, to leave behind, to reject, to consider ludicrous the truth of God revealed to us in His Word... All of these errors, all of these rejections, all of these attempts, they come about, as Jesus says in our text this morning, in verse 29, or verse 30, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. The Scriptures. As our elder chair, I was talking to him this morning, Ted, I was talking to him in his office this morning, and he quipped to me, we are just surrounded by lies. And it's true. We are surrounded by lies, 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 lies. I just brought up two scenarios, but you and I are surrounded by a world of lies, all trying to shape our minds and all working to make us feel like we are crazy for holding fast to the Word of God. But the Scriptures are our foundation of truth. They are our authority for life. 
the Scriptures which point all who take them up and read to the source of o- and the overflowing fountain of joy. The Scriptures that reveal the power of God to fill up the emptiness, to comfort and support the hurting, to console the downtrodden, to bring to the heart the loyal and steadfast promises of God, to be father to His children, to be the very Savior who truly satisfies and brings contentment to people in their varied trials and difficulties. This death by a thousand cuts mentality wasn't, isn't just alive and well for us, but it was also alive and well in the days of Jesus. As the Sadducees in our text approached him on this day with a question designed ver- to do very much the same thing that the questions that are brought to us in our day accomplish, or at least endeavor to accomplish. In their minds, they wanted to do him, to do to him what all the cuts brought against the truth of God as we speak it today are meant to do to us. Make him seem foolish. Make him seem ridiculous. Make him seem simple-minded. They brought to Jesus a question aimed at mocking an important and a crucial doctrine. One that the Sadducees had no time for because to them, this idea of resurrection from the dead seemed laughable and absurd. And they hoped by bringing Jesus this outlandish scenario to paint him into a corner and to show everyone around how backward and how unworthy of the people's attention he was. In the same way that those who reject God and His truth in our own day do to us when they come to us. You know that when someone comes to you in a crowd and says, do you think homosexuality is a sin? They're not asking you so that they can say, all right, way to go, thanks for telling us the answer. You know that the answer to the question in the affirmative, which is the biblical truth, will lead to cultural vitriol. Vitriol being an old word that means to spit acid in the face. You know, they aren't bringing the question to hear or to learn about our exalted Lord so that they might believe, but they hope for a gotcha soundbite with which to discredit you, defame you. And that's what's happening here. All of that background, to get to this point, that's what's happening here in this exchange between Christ and the Sadducees. All of what you feel, all of those thoughts going in your mind, that's what's happening here. And the fact that Jesus was treated in the same way 2,000 years ago, that he dealt with the exact same scenarios that we find ourselves dealing with today, it actually kind of excites me a little bit. Because it means we are witness to his handling of the situation. It means we get to learn from the Master how to respond to the strategies of culture. And as I said at the outset, his answer to the Sadducees' efforts is and has been to me most liberating and freeing. It brought me personally much comfort because I read, over it, over, I read it over and over again. And I spoke to a number of you about it this week too. You're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So what led up to this statement? The religious leaders in Israel had all banded together in an effort to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the crowds. Because Jesus, by his words and actions, threatened the privileged status of the religious leaders. And so Jesus told three parables in Matthew 21 and starting out in Matthew 22, all of which challenged and rebuked, as we read in 21 verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees who perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. So two groups are noted there, chief priests and Pharisees. And you'll see in 22.15 that the Pharisees responded by plotting how to entangle Jesus in his words. And so they sent their disciples with one of their most difficult dilemmas with a question designed to entrap Jesus so that no matter how he answered the question, they believed they would be entangling him. But as it always is with Jesus, he navigated their challenge by unashamedly and boldly declaring the truth of God in his typical winsome and unanswerable way. Clear, direct, unashamed, unafraid. 
But there was another group who perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. You see that in verse 2145, right? The chief priests. Now, who are these chief priests? These temple authorities were a different group than the Pharisees. And it is this group that comes to Jesus as we read in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. If the Pharisees were the more conservative, fundamental, theological, women-don't-wear-pants-in-church types, the Sadducees were the more liberal, doctrine-denying types. This group, the Sadducees, they were much smaller in number than the Pharisees, but were much more wealthy, influential, and politically powerful than the Pharisees were. The Pharisees, while they better represented and had, a, had their ear to the ground of the common man and woman, the Sadducees were the aristocratic class. These were the ones who came from the upper echelons of Jewish society. The Sadducees were the ones who held the levers of power. They controlled and oversaw the temple. They controlled and oversaw all of the services in the temple. The high priests and the chief priests were almost always Sadducees. This group was, for the most part, out of touch with the common person. And these Sadducees, because of their high and wealthy station, tended to be pro-Rome, whereas the Pharisees were anti-Rome and anti-anything that got in the way of the establishment or the re-establishment of a Jewish kingdom, a physical, temporal Jewish kingdom. The Sadducees were pro-Rome because it was by Roman rule and by Roman permission that they held on to their power. Rome even went so far as to provide for the Sadducees a sort of police force or temple guard to help keep the people in Jerusalem under control. And this was something that Rome very much appreciated because the Jewish peoples in this day had a tendency to be a little bit inflammatory, rioting, protesting. The Sadducees even supported the pagan rulers in Rome. Because it was these pagan rulers who helped the Sadducees maintain their grip on power in Jerusalem. Now, they were very much like the Pharisees in that they were proud, self-serving, self-exalting, but they were much more theologically liberal. As you see in the text, they denied the resurrection. They also, as we will see, denied the existence of angels and only saw the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those were the books that were authoritative and they generally ignored all the other writings in Scripture as less authoritative or not even authoritative at all. They were opposed to the supernatural, ignoring, disregarding, and even mocking doctrine as it benefited them. And they've not really come into contact with Jesus at this point because up to this time, the Sadducees hadn't really turned their attention toward Jesus. For them, it didn't matter if there was some wandering prophet who spent his time in the countrysides teaching the common folk. But once that wandering uh, rabbi comes into the temple and starts flipping tables and touching the financial machine that supports them, now the Sadducees are going to get involved. Jesus entered what they considered their turf when he entered the temple on that day. He disrupted their system. He cost them time. He cost them money. And so now the Sadducees join with the Pharisees to set their sights on the destruction of Jesus. And these Sadducees, they saw that the Pharisees couldn't get the job done. They brought them, the Pharisees brought to Jesus their most entangling question and couldn't get the job done. And so now later in the day, the Sadducees, they approach Jesus with their own question. A question or a scenario that they used to great and with great effect against the Pharisees many times over. So you see, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a political hot potato, and the Sadducees come with theological thorns. Matthew lets us in by a parenthetical note. That, that phrase, 
who say that there is no resurrection, depending on your translation, you'll see parentheses around it because it's a parenthetical note given to us by Matthew to help us understand the Sadducees and to prepare us for what comes next. So they bring a question in verse 24. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that's a little bit of a foreign concept for us, but it was very common for the Jewish peoples. It's called the leveret law or leveret marriage. And it's explained in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. Listen, here's what Moses instructed. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name, that's important, to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So you see, this, this idea of leveret marriage was designed to maintain family names, family lines, and family estates in the nation of Israel. It was to ensure that the family name didn't die out. That was a really big deal for the Jews in these days. And so the firstborn son in the second marriage, or the third marriage, or however, whatever many times it took, would be counted as the child of the first brother. And the, to this child went the inheritance, and this child carried on the name and the family line of his deceased brother so that it would not die out in Israel. This law was so important to Israel that for the next of kin to refuse to do this duty, Moses said this in Deuteronomy 25, verse 9. If he refuses, his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. This is the law that the Sadducees are referencing. And note, just note, that this law has nothing to do with and nothing to say to the afterlife. It has nothing to do with resurrection of the dead. Its very intent is to govern the, the physical life of Israel in the land of Israel. It's a common tactic, right? To take a text that has nothing to do with the subject and apply it to that subject as though it has everything to do with that subject. But Jesus doesn't fall for their tricks. But even though the text had nothing to say to the afterlife, that didn't stop the Sadducees from using it to craft this fringe, this outlandish, this death-by-a-thousand-cuts scenario. And note that they subtly indicate that it occurred among them. We'll see that when we get to read the scenario. But most commentators uh, are of the opinion that they're saying the brothers were among them is a device that they created to add weight to their made-up story. So here's the scenario starting in verse 25. Look at it. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, and after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now this is what they deem to be the unanswerable question. The nail in the coffin. The clinching argument with which to deny the idea or the central doctrine of the resurrection to life from the dead. In other words, if all these men are raised up along with the woman... How can their marriages be restored and reconciled? Surely, surely, she cannot be married to all seven of these men in the supposed res resurrection, can she? And to them, that means, see how foolish this doctrine is? But I want you to note their assumption. Their assumption is, along with the Pharisees, that the resurrection means life as usual. 
The Pharisees had this idea of a resurrection that the Sadducees used against them. The Pharisees assumed that the afterlife would closely resemble this life, with all of its relationships and all of its stations restored. So for that reason, the Sadducees say she can't be married to all of them, right? She can only belong to one, correct? And they were all married to her in a legally binding way. So, Pharisees, so Jesus, does she get to pick? Are they going to play a hand of poker? Are they going to pick a number between 1 and 10? Maybe they're going to play some rock, paper, scissors. And as the Sadducees complete their scenario and they cap it off with their question, whose wife then will she be? You can imagine them all folding their arms, looking at each other with their knowing smirks. We got them. Recounting in their minds just how many times they stumped the Pharisees with this question and watched them scurry off rather than respond. They assume it's the unanswerable question. And they hope to see Jesus, like the Pharisees many times before, tuck tail and run or admit their view that the resurrection is an absurdity. But Jesus answered them, You're wrong. Yes, yes, you are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Look, Jesus did not step back on the back foot and go on the defensive. Jesus went on the offensive, saying, in essence, your very question reveals two stunning errors. One, you don't know the Scriptures. And two, you have no clue about the power of God. You are wrong. You are deceived. You are misled. You've been led off course from the truth by your own ignorance. You are ignorant of what the Scripture says and teaches, which is the source, right, of oh so much error. The byproduct of faulty and mistaken understandings of Scripture is deception. As a state of being deceived and as an action, going out and deceiving. He said to them, you are also ignorant of God's power to raise his people up and to transform them at the resurrection. And you are ignorant to assume that the resurrection means that things are going to return to life as usual. And so now Jesus will show them how they are lacking knowledge And notice, he's going to do it by pointing them to the books of Moses. He's going to show how they're lacking knowledge in both the Scriptures and in the power of God. And Jesus begins with their ignorance of the power of God in verse 30, saying this, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So first, the power of God will raise people from the dead. And we will be reunited with our bodies, as Jesus will say in chapter 25. And those who rejected Christ's offer of salvation will be told by Jesus in 25 verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels while those who trusted Christ at the resurrection will hear these most precious words in Matthew 25, 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the Apostle Paul speaks to this power when he wrote to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. But listen, as Jesus said, when we are raised up, it's not going to be life as usual. It won't be to a life that mirrors and continues on this life that we are living on earth. As Jesus said, look at, he said in verse 30, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. There's a difference between life in heaven and life on earth. Now, why would that be? It's because on earth, marriage performs and fulfills a number of functions. I'll give you three. 
Number one, it is in and by marriage that God commands humanity to be fruitful and multiply. That is the appropriate design of God for fruitfulness and multiplication on earth. In the eternal state, this mandate no longer applies as God's children never die and babies are no longer born. Number two, marriage also addresses the human need for relationship. Remember, back in the garden, when the Lord said to about Adam before the creation of Eve in Genesis 1.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In the eternal state, in heaven, we exist in perfect relationship and in perfect communion with the Lord God Himself. He is our joy. He is our prize. And along with that, our connection to and relationship with the perfected saints is more harmonious and closer than anything we will or ever can experience here on earth. Because sin and its effects on even the closest of our earthly relationships is completely extinguished and completely removed. And thirdly, marriage, according to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, serves as a picture, as a reflection of the gospel, as a reflection of the relationship that exists between Christ the Lord and His church. In heaven, the picture is displaced by the reality. In heaven, the shadow makes way for the real. Now, I can already tell or I can already assume that a number of questions are arising in your head. Yeah, but will there be hockey? Will I be able to play golf? What sort of overlap will there be between heaven and this life? Will I be able to recognize my earthly wife or husband in heaven? Will I know my friends? Will I be able to like search for the Apostle Peter so I can ask him, what was it like on the night when you betrayed Jesus? Let me say this, I don't know the exact answers to every single one of those questions. The scripture seems to indicate that we would know who Moses and Elijah are, seeing that they came, uh, appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. But much of what heaven will actually be like whether you will be able to play squash or whether you'll be able to go fishing or, you know, with fish that don't die, obviously. Uh, we, we don't know. But we can say this. Heaven will be perfect. Heaven will be greater than anything we know. Greater than anything we love. Greater than anything we experience here. Heaven, whatever and however it takes, whatever the form is, will be no loss but instead will be splendid, dazzling, sensational gain in every possible, imaginable way. Jesus continued in verse 30, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, hear clearly what Jesus didn't say, right? He didn't say they will be angels in heaven, but said they will be like angels in heaven. In heaven. Now, in what way? It will be like angels in the fact that we are transformed into heavenly glorified bodies and sinless. We'll be lifted above physical relationships. We will be the eternal sons and daughters of God. We will have direct access to the Lord. Our earthly bodies are transformed and are perfectly fit for communion with the Lord and dwelling in the presence of the Lord. And as Jesus references angels here, he is subtly and indirectly, maybe directly, correcting yet another theological error of the Sadducees who denied the existence of angels. In his answer, Jesus in essence asks them, did you really think that God is not powerful enough or wise enough to handle such a scenario as the one that you bring to me? Your question does nothing to disprove the resurrection because by the power of God, the resurrection will be different than it is now. Life for the people of God will be transformed. It won't be a one-to-one -one connection there and here, but instead it will be superior in every single way. Well, that was the first. Secondly, Jesus sets out to display for everyone the Sadducees too ignorance of Scripture in verse 31 saying, 
As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Have you no idea what God himself has said in the scriptures? You who quote the scripture to make your argument, but don't actually know what what it teaches, you should know better. It's all written for you in black and white. You can search it. You can look at it. You can read it. You can study it as needed. So Sadducees, why be so cagey and deceptive with your interpretations and applications and omissions of Scripture? You're able to pull out a text in order to quote it and misapply it for your goals and ends, but you don't know the Scriptures in the least. Before you pull out a text that has nothing to do with the afterlife in order to prove your preconceived notion that there isn't an afterlife, before you pull a text that has nothing to do with the afterlife and use it as a pretext to deny the resurrection, you need to think to yourself, do I know the whole flow of Scripture? Do I know the thrust of Scripture? Do I know what is going on before and what's going on after? Do I know the whole design of the book? Do I know what Scripture is teaching? Do I know the context of the text that I'm repeating? And if you do, if you know the context in a, of a text, then great, use it to declare God's glorious will. Jesus did it in the, in the, in the, um, the desert when the devil was tempting him, right? Turn these stones into bread. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus wrote the book. He knows exactly the context, and he'll proof text away because he knows the context. But if you don't know, don't do it. Sadducees, you don't know the teaching of God in the books of Moses, which you consider authoritative. Look what is declared by God himself about resurrection. Look at verse 32. This is what God said. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus here quotes the words of Mo- the Lord's words to Moses from out of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And these are the express words spoken from the mouth of the Lord directly, not through another person, not through an inspired author. These are the direct words of God from the bush. And what is it that God said from out of the bush? He said, look, I am the God of Abraham. God speaks of himself in the present tense and not just in the present tense. This is what you call the emphatic present tense. Meaning, At this moment, I am still as much their God now as I was during their earthly lives. And even more so, as they now live and dwell in my presence, awaiting their resurrection. See, the loyalty and love of God to the patriarchs, the promises of God made to them, did not end or do not conclude upon their earthly death. No, God is still their God. Even today, thousands of years later, the Lord still is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He has not changed. Thousands of years after they've perished from the earth, they remain in ongoing relationship with the Lord, which speaks to the reason for their current state. They are awaiting their resurrection. If God is their God, that means they still exist They still live in some realm unseen to us and God's promises will be fulfilled to them when they are raised up. And so Jesus here did did what the best and brightest of the Pharisees had been unable to do up to this point. He proved the resurrection of the dead from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible itself, from which none of the Pharisees were ever able to find any texts to use in response. But again, seeing that the pre-incarnate Christ is the one who spoke the words from the burning bush, he knows the context, he knows the meaning of Scripture better than any of them, and no doubt, I have no doubt that from this moment on, the words of Christ that the Pharisees heard that day were used once and for all to silence this now defunct conundrum brought to the Pharisees by the Sadducees. You see, so fired up were the Pharisees upon hearing the word of Jesus to the Sadducees that Luke records some of the scribes piping up, Teacher, you have spoken well! 
in chapter 20, verse 39. And you can imagine all of the other ones around them jabbing them and saying, hey, we're against them. Zip it. But when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. As he'd done with the Pharisees, Jesus silenced the Sadducees as well. The Sadducees would no longer bring such questions to him, but sadly, as was the case with the Pharisees, even as Christ so ably answered all their questions, it did not move the needle of faith for any of them. But they left all the more enraged and all the more committed to ending his life. Now, before I get to the closing, I'm just going to give you an aside because this text has been very helpful to me in one particular uh, circumstance. So this is, this is outside of the message, but kind of connected. If you ever get Jehovah's Witnesses beating down your door with their Awake and Watchtower magazines, I find Luke's record of this interchange between the Sadducees and Jesus to be the single best argument I've ever used against them. So here's what I say whenever they come by, which is not, which they don't anymore because I think I've been blacklisted. <laughs> but every time, this is what does it. As you know, if you are familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they consider us what is called polytheists because we hold to the biblical fact that God is triune. He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each distinct, worthy of the same worship, worthy of the same exaltation, worthy of the same respect, each fully divine, and at the same time, the three comprise one Godhead. And one of the reasons that the Jehovah's Witness think this way, that we are polytheists, is based on their translation of John chapter 1, verse 1. For every translation throughout the history of the Christian church up till this day, other than the New World Translation, which is theirs, the text says something along these lines. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a statement of the divinity of Christ. This Word was God is with a capital G, meaning He is God. Now I want you to listen to the New World Translation. See if you spot a difference. This is what the Jehovah's Witness text says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a, small g, God. The Word was a God, small g. Small g, God, meaning, according to their estimation, meaning an angel or some really cool human being who ended up becoming like Jesus, as we know him. I mean, he was great, but not big G or capital G God, not God, not Jehovah God. This is the old Arian heresy revisited. The old Arian heresy was there was a time when the Son of God did not exist, which is absolute heresy. The early church has already dealt with this in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Jehovah's Witnesses just kind of brought up or recycled an old heresy. And they'll point to this verse and they'll say things like, there are a number of small g-gods, that's no big deal. Lots of angels, lots of royal human beings, but there is only one big g-god. But there was a time in my life when I sought to be kind of an apologist to these heretical sects, and I dove right in to trying to figure out how to combat and talk with and, and strategize against them. And I noted in some of those studies that the specific Greek construction of John 1.1 is also found in one other place in the New Testament. And so wanting to know if they are consistent in their translation process, I looked it up and lo and behold, I'll give them this, they are consistent. And yet none of the, none of the people that come to your door will ever know this. And the verse is Luke chapter 20 verse 38. It's Jesus' answer to the Sadducees as recorded by Luke. Right? This text that we're looking at, he is, uh, here in Matthew it says, uh, he is not God of the dead but of the living. Luke has it a little bit different. So listen to how the New World Translation speaks it. He, that's Jehovah or Yahweh, is a God, capital G. Not of the dead, but of the living, for they are all living to him. Whew! That's a hot one right there. 
So now, because of that text, when Jeho- if ever a JW comes to my door ever again, I always begin with, I'm sorry, not a polytheist. I only believe in one God who exists in three persons. And the protest usually returns, well, we're not polytheists. We really believe there's only one God, Jehovah God. And I respond, well, the New World Translation states in John 1, 1, that Jesus is a God, meaning that he is one of a number and variety of small g gods that exist. Correct? That's what a God means. Correct. Well, does Scripture ever declare Jehovah, big G, capital G God, to be a God, as in the big G God, one among many other big G gods? Well, no. I agree the Bible doesn't do that. But yours does. What? Yeah. The New World Translation does indeed speak of Jehovah as a big G God, meaning that you are the real polytheists and therefore heretics. And then the protest comes, well, what, where, how, when? Then you lead them in their own translation to Luke 20, 38, and I've seen it at least five times now as they read and reread and reread and try to make sense of it every time eventually leaving my house never to return. I've used this over and over again numerous times. It always goes the same way. So arm yourselves with this for the next time your Saturday morning breakfast is interrupted by a knock on the door. Back to the text. That was just an aside. A couple of closing thoughts and encouragements for you this morning based on what we've just read. Look to the example of Christ. And know this, that even if you have all of the answers, one of our big fears, right, is that we don't want to not have an answer to somebody. Even if you have all the answers, those who don't want to believe will still hate you. Don't buy into the idea that you cannot speak about Jesus or tell people about Jesus because you won't be able to answer every one of their questions. Because look at Jesus, he was able to answer all the questions and the people still hated him. So be faithful to share the gospel. Trust God to do the work of saving souls. Trust God to open eyes to see and ears to hear. And, and, listen, you are permitted, even though so many would consider this the cardinal sin, you are permitted to tell those who warp and contort the word of God, who seek to make a fool of you with their fringe scenarios and questions, you are permitted to say, you are wrong, you don't know God's word. You are given permission to tell people who warp God's word, you are wrong, you don't know God's word. It's okay to be confident in your knowledge of God's word. It's okay to recognize God's word has a fixed meaning. And it's okay to realize that God gave us his word not so that we would not know him, but so that we would know him. You will often be met with, well, that's just your interpretation. You can say, no, that's simply what God's word in context teaches. Don't get on the back foot. You are allowed to base your authority on the word of God. Because ignorance of God's word is the foundation upon which error is built. And should scriptures make certain truth the world despises clear, and should the world threaten to label you as a fool, to hate you, to marginalize you, to slander you, guess what? It's all good. They are wrong because they do not know the word of God. They did the same thing to Jesus, and he never wavered but he continued proclaiming and teaching the truth and relying on his heavenly Father. And so we are called to imitate his example. So take courage, saints. Go out into the world and make disciples. Amen and amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for all the time you gave me to preach this morning. I ask that uh, your word will be a, an encouragement to your saints. I pray that somehow, some way, that your truth uh, will help to get us through the weeds of arguments that the world continually brings to us in order to keep our mouths closed or to make us look like fools. But I pray that Jesus being our model, that we would step into the world bringing the gospel and not being afraid to look like fools to the world as we do. 
I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit as you promised in, uh, in, in John's Gospel to remind us of everything Christ has taught. Give us the words to say and the words to speak and the confidence to speak them as we boldly uh, proclaim your word. And I pray that you would help us to know your word so that we could do that well. We ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.